Turn with me to 1 Timothy chapter 6. First Timothy chapter 6, we'll be reading verses 17 through verse 21. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, yes, it is Paul's word as well, uh, but never forget when you're reading scripture, while it was penned uh, by a human being, it was also penned by the Holy Spirit, who spoke through, infallibly, through um, his human instruments that he chose to use, such as Paul. And so God uh, is speaking these words. Uh, This uh, word is uh, infallible and inerrant in the original languages in which it was given, and it remains to us in faithful translations of the original, the authoritative word of God speaking. So, verse 17, 1 Timothy chapter 6, the word of the Lord. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, avoiding worldly, empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. Pray with me. O Lord, we ask that you would Help us now. We are in particularly need of help as we interact with your word, your written word. Um, There is danger on the part of the preacher, and there is danger on the part of the hearer um, that we might get this wrong. Would you please help us not to? Lord Jesus, would you please proclaim your truth afresh uh, through my words? Would you please honor yourself and the Father and the Spirit? And oh yes, would you please bless us as well? We ask it in your name. Amen. Kids, I imagine you have probably been told by your parents uh, at times um, that it's important for you to share things with other children. Am I right about that? Probably. 
brother or sister, um, or maybe a friend that's over visiting with you, neighbor, child, or maybe a cousin or something like that, your parents have probably said, now you need to share with so-and-so, your sister or your cousin or your, your, your friend. You need to share, maybe you have some toys that you have that belong to you, they're your toys, but the, the nice thing, the right thing to do, the Christian thing to do, is to share those toys that you have with somebody else who's with you. Or maybe it's something, um, a, a tasty thing that you have, uh, uh, some fruit, uh, or some candy. Fruit's better than candy, by the way. Um, but, uh, but whatever it is, <coughs> excuse me, if you have something that you have a little extra of, uh, you ought to share it. Or even, you ought to give what you have, the really nice thing to do, which if you, there isn't enough for both of you, uh, you and somebody other other person, is to let the other person have what you was, were going to eat. But you say, you can have it. We're supposed to do that as Christians. We're supposed to share. Now, that's true of all Christians. But that's particularly true... Uh, of Christians who have a lot of things to share. Um, Not just Christian adults, who maybe are fairly wealthy or have a lot of possessions or a lot of money in the bank, but it's also true of children, Christian children, who are well off as children go. We are required, especially if we're well off, to share. It's something that um, Christians should want to do and should be happy to do. And if you're not happy to do that, you ought to pray, Lord, would you please make me willing and even happy to share what I have with others? Well, this passage, among other things, addresses, uh, a good share of it actually does address, uh, those who are have a lot in society. Um, and we are commanded here to be generous with what we have uh, and to be happy to share with others what we have as Christians. And so I'm going to make the point here in just a minute that we're all rich, uh, including you children. So this applies to all of us, not just to certain individuals. Um, As you can see from where I read, uh, we are at the tail end of uh, Timothy's letter, here, uh, his first of two letters that he wrote specifically to Timothy, his uh, understudy, we could call him, his uh, assistant, uh, who has uh, become a pastor at this point, uh, and whom Paul left in charge in Ephesus of the ministry there. He was the, uh, the head pastor, if you will, in the Ephesian church at this point in time, because Paul, in his role as the apostle, one of the uh, 13, remember there were 13 apostles of Christ, uh, had extraordinary authority as the, as the apostle, and he put Timothy in charge of the church there in Ephesus. And he writes uh, two letters that we have uh, to uh, Timothy. And so we're arriving at the end of this letter, and Paul uh, has a few concluding thoughts that he wants to leave Timothy, and he knows, of course, that Timothy is going to share this with all of those under him, 
those, all those to whom he ministers. It's very evident that he and Paul intends, in fact, he says it as much here in verse 17, you need to share what I'm sharing with you right now with people in your congregation. So, this letter isn't just for Timothy, uh, but portions of it are particularly addressed to him, which is why the letter uh, is described, uh, uh, designated First Timothy. So there are uh, two essential uh, points that are uh, made here by the Apostle Paul and by the Holy Spirit through him that are uh, summarized in my two points of this sermon. First, we're going to look at uh, apostolic commands to the well-off believer or believers. And then secondly, we're going to look at apostolic commands to Pastor Timothy himself. First, in the first two, three verses, verses 17 through 19, we see here apostolic commands to well-off Christians, to well-off believers. I'll read it again. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. So Paul wants Timothy to communicate specifically to a specific specific portion of his uh, congregation, or perhaps it was more than one congregation, uh, meeting house, if you will, in in Ephesus, uh, it's possible, or in the surrounding area. But those under his charge who are well off, who have are rich in this present world, to use Paul's language, um, he has certain instructions for them in particular. Now, who would be who would constitute uh, someone who is well off or rich, to use the the word that Paul uses here? Well, those who are well off or rich would be those considered by society at large to be wealthy in the realm of material things. Now, that didn't take me to explain that to you. You all pretty much intuitively know what it means to be rich, but it's defined by society. Um, the society at large around us as to what constitutes wealthy in a given society. Now, of course, uh, to be wealthy doesn't just include material objects themselves, like cars or homes or what have you, but would also include money with which we buy those things that are material uh, in our lives. <coughs> so, someone who lives perhaps a very l- modest lifestyle I was just talking with somebody yesterday about a person, I can't remember actually who the person was, but who was, uh, was somebody last night um, who was at a function uh, over at the Hayes that I was at and was speaking about a, a relative who was very well-to-do but lives a very modern, modest life. You'd never know that the person had a lot of money, but in fact, he or she, I can't remember, did and does, uh, but they don't, they don't flaunt it. And so the average person wouldn't know that so-and-so, this individual, was well-off. But so somebody who lives a modest lifestyle but has an enormous sum of money in the bank or under his mattress, that person would still be included in this category of a well-off person. Somebody of means, as we sometimes say. Now, 
if it is only the citizens of the United States of America, modern United States of America, who are determining what constitutes being wealthy, if we as a society here in the U.S. are defining this term and who fits into this category of well-off or wealthy, then many of the folks who live in Appalachia or the Delta in Mississippi or in certain places in rural East Texas wouldn't fall into the category of well-off or wealthy or rich. But if Paul and his readers or the inhabitants of today's modern Africa or Asia or South America were making the determination of what constituted being wealthy, then guess what? I dare say that there are very few Americans, and probably nobody in this room, uh, who would fail to be included in the category of well-off. You talk to somebody from Malawi. My brother and his uh, wife uh, went to Malawi a few years ago, and it's one of the poorest nations on earth. That's where they were fed dried field mice as an hors d'oeuvre at a function they were at. On a stick. Dried field mice. I have a picture of it on my phone if you want to see it. Anyway, um, poor place. All of us are rich compared to those folks in Malawi. Pretty sure that's the case. The point, you, you know the point where I'm, I'm making here. The point I'm making is that every one of us here today probably ought to consider ourselves in the category of well-off and consequently ought to view the instructions that follow as applying to us. So, given that fact, Paul is warning all of us here as well-off believers of the danger, first of all, of a couple things. He says, there's a danger of you being conceited. (coughs) Excuse me. Why might pride, conceit, why might that be a temptation for a wealthier believer such as you and me? Why might that be a temptation? Well, kind of obvious, isn't it? Because those of us who are more materially well-off than others in our world might, might be tempted to believe that our greater monetary wealth uh, means that we ourselves are of greater worth or value than somebody who doesn't have what we possess, be they somebody in this uh, rural East Texas or somebody in Malawi or some other uh, very poor part of our planet, which is the majority of our planet. Pride can come in because of what we have. And we can start to be think more highly of ourselves than we should. And the Holy Spirit, speaking here through Paul, straightforwardly commands us not to fall into this sin of conceit. Instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited. Paul says something similarly over in um, James chapter 1, verse 10, where he says, if I can find it, Realized I went past it. James 1, verse 10. And let the rich man glory, he says, in his humiliation. 
another word essentially related to humility. Let the rich man glory in his humiliation. That's what the rich man, again, in some sense all of us here today, uh, glory in humility, in humiliation. The Holy Spirit says that's what you are to do as a well-off, blessed, a materially blessed believer. And God feels very strongly about the sin of pride, doesn't he? There are many places. The first uh, uh, chapter or two of Isaiah is just brutal uh, to those who uh, are full of themselves or think uh, that they are better than someone else. Uh, Solomon, in Proverbs chapter 16, uh, says in no uncertain terms, the Holy Spirit through him, uh, chapter 16, verse 5, everyone who is proud in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Assuredly, he will not be unpunished. I mean, it's, it's, it's as plain as day. Abomination, by the way, is a very strong word that means it's hateful to the Lord. He, he detests pride. Because, of course, what is pride? It's, the, it's idolatry by another name, self-idolatry by another name. Any kind of idolatry, particularly of ourselves, is just vile in his sight. And that includes those of us who uh, are well off. Again, probably most everyone here, uh, relative, as, as Paul would designate us to be such people, given what we have uh, in our day and age. To echo Paul's words in Romans chapter 12, verse 3, every Christian needs to be careful not to think more highly of himself or herself than he ought. You need to think, you need to be careful not to do this yourself. I need to be careful not to do this myself. Especially when we see someone else who perhaps is not what we would define as well-off as we are. When you see someone panhandling at the intersection at Walmart, what thoughts cross your mind? Is there any anything uh, self-congratulatory in your attitude as you see that person? Who has the little sign? If so, you need to repent of your arrogance. You, I, we are no more valuable as human beings than that person panhandling at the intersection or under the bridge. We are no more valuable as in terms of our, as, as far as our humanity is concerned. Oh yes, we may have a whole lot more in the bank. He probably doesn't have a bank account. But he's no more, you're no more valuable. I'm no more valuable than the homeless person panhandling. We must not ever do that. And if you catch yourself doing that, next time you see a panhandler, by the way, I'm not advocating that you give money to them, necessarily. 
I, I tend not to give money to individuals. I will buy them food um, because I, that way I know how the money is being spent because a lot of those people are going to spend it on the things you would not approve of, uh, and arguably that's a waste of money um, and facilitating their uh, sinful uh, behavior. But we are to have compassion. We are to see them as people with dignity in spite of the circumstances in which they find themselves. We are, to, we are warned not to be conceited. Paul also warns you, as a well-off believer, of the danger not only of being conceited, but of fixing your hope on your wealth. Whether it be wealth that's in the form of a house that you've paid off, maybe. Vehicles that you have in the, uh, in the uh, driveway. Property that you own. Perhaps you own a lot of property, precious metals or jewels, perhaps, that you have in the vaults, money that you have in your bank account. Regardless of what it is, you are not to fix your hope on such things. To do so, first of all, uh, is foolish. Because, as Paul mentions and, and makes the point here in our text this morning, uh, uh, that wealth of yours is uncertain. He describes it as uncertain. That is to say, it's undependable. It cannot be depended on to not disappear. I don't know if you all have been looking at the stock market this past week, but we've had a correction this month. A big one. I know my 401k is not what it was a month ago. That's not zero, but you know, it gave me heartburn when I thought about it briefly. Um, it's it can just go up in smoke, figuratively speaking, or if it's your house, literally, it can go up in smoke. Money, possessions, these things can slip through our fingers like sand on the beach. I hope. So, so we're told here, don't fix your hope on those things. Don't fix your hope on your bank balance, on your property, um, on your uh, whatever it might be. And to do so is foolish because it's uncertain, but it's also to do so is to make that thing your God in some sense. That possession, that money, that bank account, that 401k, your God, if you fix your hope on such a thing. And I hope I don't have to tell you what God thinks of that kind of an allegiance. You'll have no other gods before me. Including your stash, whatever it is. Paul also urges you and I not only to not place our hope in our valuables or our material possessions or our money, but on the other hand, what we are to do, he says, is you are to put your hope in God himself. You are to put your confidence in God himself. You are to put your sense of well-being for the present and the future, your hope, in God himself. Not in what he has given to you. You're to trust in the giver, not in his gifts. That's where your peace of mind 
should come from. From Him. Knowing that He is in charge of your life. Knowing that He is the one who will provide for you. Come what may, uh, should your house burn down or we go into an economic depression. And why should you place your hope in Him? The text tells us. Because He's the one who supplies Everything that you have, whatever you have right now in the way of material or monetary wealth, is only there because God has given it to you. Providentially, yes. Through, through your employment, through uh, you know, uh, what you inherited, through your hard work, what have you. But it's still God giving it to you through those means. He's still the provider. And He is the one who supplies all that you and I possess, including, if you happen to have a lot, that big chunk that you have. And that's why you can hope in Him. And should hope in Him, because again, the gifts are fleeting. They are ephemeral. They pass away. They evaporate. Now, they might not, but they certainly may. We have no guarantee that they won't. They're uncertain. And not only are you to trust God because He's the one who gives the things that you need to you and me, but also, the other reason you can and should trust God that's mentioned here in this text, there are lots of reasons, of course, but that's mentioned in this text is what He has given to you and what He does give to you, He does that for you you to enjoy. To enjoy. God wants you, His child, to enjoy the life that He has given you. And to actually enjoy the gifts. You don't enjoy them by worshiping them. You enjoy them by thanking God for them and delighting in them as as while they're there, but delighting really in the Lord for providing them Whatever it is. But He has given you, He wants you. God is not a killjoy. It's right there. He wants you to have joy in your life. And there are many sources of that joy. He is first and foremost, by far, the greatest, should be the greatest source of your joy. The Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. But there are other things. <coughs> including your material possessions that are to be enjoyed. You're, again, you know, as I, you all have heard me, this I'm like a broken record, but your taste buds. He gave them to you. He didn't have to give you taste buds. You could just put food in your mouth and digest it and get no enjoyment out of what you're eating. You just eat to subsist. He didn't have to give you taste buds. That's for enjoyment. God wants you to enjoy, but not to idolize what he gives, the good gifts that he gives you. Paul instructs you how to use your wealth and live your life in this, in verse 18, as uh, you place, as you are placing your hope in God rather than in your wealth. <coughs> Sorry, I'm still getting over my COVID. <clears throat> I'm not, I'm, I'm not contagious. That's not what I meant. There's just a little rattling around still inside. But it's 
not the, anyway. I'm a mess, I know. Um, God, Paul instructs you, the Holy Spirit instructs you how to, how to place your hope in God as you have wealth from Him. And that is, he says, to do good there. Instruct them, those that are particularly well off amongst you, to do good. And then by being, to, to be rich, this is how you do good, by being rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. So, this is how you're to live your life as you hope in God. You are to do good in this life. It is part of your mission statement. And those who are particularly well off in this life are to uh, do good by being rich in good works. As a well-off believer, much of your time and energy should be devoted to engagement in good, the good works of which Paul and the Holy Spirit are thinking, as defined in the Scriptures, rather than in amassing more money and possessions for yourself. Yes, there's nothing wrong with uh, growing your wealth. Uh, the uh, Shorter Catechism exposition of the... Um, Eighth commandment uh, makes that point well. But it is not to be your all-consuming um, thing in life, shall we say. Good works are to be your goal. As you accumulate wealth, that's fine. But to use as you're accumulating through the, the way you conduct yourself, the way you do your work... Uh, the way you uh, grow your income, whatever, uh, and also what you do with that is is to be um, is is to be the focus, the way, not the thing itself, per se. And in order to be rich in good works and to not focus our time and energy mostly on our money and possessions, but rather on doing good works, we have to get our eyes or keep our eyes off of ourselves. Because good works is involves other people, by and large, and God himself. The focus, our focus has to be outward. We, have, we need to be outwardly focused. We can't be inwardly focused and be a, a, a regular doer of good works. It requires that we get our eyes off ourselves. And he says, this is what you are to do. You are to... Uh, <clears throat> to be a, a doer of good works. And for a rich person, one the one good work that <coughs> well-off Christians are particularly suited to is the good work of being generous with and uh, being ready to share their wealth with others. That's a particularly important way that a well-off believer can do good works through the use of his or her wealth. And the Lord, through Paul, encourages us to share our material wealth with others who need it with the uh, the affirmation that he makes there in verse 19. He says, I'll start back in verse 18. Hold on, I need to cough one more time. 
It's 18, then 19. Instruct them. Thank you, sir. Instruct them to do good works, to be rich in good work. No, excuse me. Let's start again. Instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share. And then here's the, uh, uh, the affirmation of what will happen when you do that. Storing up for themselves, as they are generous and ready to share, doing good works that way. Storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Now here I think good foundation is essentially equivalent to the treasure. Um, uh, In other words, storing up for themselves the treasure, a good foundation for the future. I think they're essentially synonyms, uh, more or less. Um, But he's talking about, there's you're storing up something that is future, as you, in the present, engage in good works, particularly as the rich use their riches for good in this world, um, you're storing something up for yourself in the future. And that future, of course, is in heaven that he has in mind in particular. And so you see, good works, such as being generous with others, with the resources with which God has blessed you, Good works demonstrate the reality of your justifying faith in Christ. If you have justifying faith in Christ that has caused you to be pardoned by God, that has caused you to be declared righteous in God's sight, because not because you are, but because of Christ's righteousness given to you by faith, when you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. If you um, have justifying faith, that justifying faith will be demonstrated, will be exhibited by or evidenced by, good works, which, by the way, necessarily accomplish that, accompany that justifying faith. Necessarily accompany it. Indeed, to enter into heaven, to eternal life, which is the life that he's referring to there in verse 19, um, to enter into eternal life, a Christian's justifying faith will be, will be accompanied by some amount of good works. Now, it depends on how long he's been a Christian uh, prior to his death. Thief on the cross didn't have a whole lot of time for good works. But they were there. They accompanied his saving slash justifying faith that he had in Christ. So good works are necessary to get into heaven, just not in the Roman Catholic way. The word that plays no part in our justification. Yes, they will accompany us to glory, and they must. But they plays no part in our justification that occurs when we are born again. And for the rich, as Paul would define rich, which is probably again most of us here, uh, the good works that we have. Are going to among them are going to be what we did with our money, or our possessions if they are in kind possessions. So, what are you doing with your money? Hmm? Are you doing the right things with your money? Do you have the right 
attitude toward your money? Are you, is your, is your uh, spending appropriately placed? Does it reflect a God-honoring use of your resources that He has given you to use for His glory? Are you tithing? I don't normally bring that up, but it's appropriate here. Are there needy people who, through your giving, are being helped in some way, shape, or form? Even if it's just modest. Remember the widow's might? You're giving your your use of your material wealth must honor God. He insists upon it. And you should want that, by the way. And if you don't, you need to ask the Lord, Lord, would you please give me a heart that doesn't cling to my thing? Number two, briefly. So, we see in verses 17 through 19, the apostolic commands to the well-off. We see in verses... We see in verses... 20 and 21, the apostolic commands to Timothy himself. I'll read it. O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, verse 20, avoiding worldly empty chatter and the opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and thus gone astray from the faith. Grace be with you. So, first there in verse 20, he tells Paul, or Peter rather, uh, uh, Timothy rather, that he is to guard what has been entrusted uh, to him. He is referring here to the body of apostolic teaching that Timothy possessed, specifically the teaching he got, he got from Paul. I don't know if Timothy interacted with any of the other apostles. I am not aware of that. He may have had some interaction, bumped into Peter on some trip or something, I don't know. But the vast majority, if not all, of what Paul, uh, Timothy got uh, in terms of teaching was from Paul himself, who was an apostle. And that is what was entrusted to Timothy. Uh, you might think, well, that, that's, where'd you get that? Well, I'm going to tell you just briefly here, do a little exegesis here. Um, that this is the right understanding of the phrase, what has been entrusted to you there in verse 20, is evident, first of all, from the immediate context. If you look at the context of 1 Timothy, it's pretty clear, because uh, of what he said prior to this point in time, that that's what he means, that he's talking about apostolic uh, uh, body of truth. But also, we can know uh, more uh, to the point by what we read um, over in 2 Timothy. Turn with me there. Chapter 1, verse 14. Because in 2 Timothy, or 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 14, <coughs> Paul once again uses the identical phrase that we just read in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 20, uh, what, has, uh, what has been entrusted to you. That same, very same phrase is used by Paul in 2 Timothy, his second letter to the same guy. He uses that exact same phrase in verse 14. But let me read verse 13 first. So in verse 13, he starts out 2 Timothy chapter 1. Retain the standard of sound words 
which you have heard from me in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. Guard through the Spirit who dwells in us the treasure which has been entrusted to you. And then he goes on. Notice the tre- uh, guard uh, the treasure which has been entrusted to you. That's the exact same phrase, the same in English, in this translation anyway, and in the Greek. It's the same, very same phrase that Paul's uses. And he only uses it in um, one other place, which is also in 2 Timothy, and I can't remember quite where it is. But there, that, that phrase is only found three places, 1 Timothy and twice in 2 Timothy. Okay, And um, in verse 14, uh, that I just read to you from 2 Timothy chapter 1, Verse 14, guard through the Holy Spirit who trusts in you the treasure which has been entrusted to you. Um, Paul tells Timothy to do that, and it's the identical language, again, that's found in verse 20 over in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And it's clear that this phrase in chapter 14, or verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1, that phrase is equivalent to what he said back in verse 13. Remember I read that previous verse? He said in chapter thir- verse 13, Retain the standard of sound words which you have heard from me. Uh, in the faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So, that phrase in verse 14 of 2 Timothy chapter 1 uh, the treasure which has, or the good deposit which has been entrusted to you, is it's, it's quite obviously um, the same as what Paul was saying in the previous verse. Uh, that the sound words which you have heard from me. Okay. So what I'm trying to get at is that the sound words which you have heard from me is what Paul uh, Paul is also saying to Timothy over in First Timothy chapter six verse twenty. To O Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you, what has been entrusted to you, the sound words that you heard from me. See the point of the way I'm making that connection? That's exegesis, by the way. Which, by the way, was, and what was that what, that he heard from Paul? The teachings of the faith. Which was not just what Paul was teaching, but what all the apostles were teaching, which they got from Christ. And Paul says to Timothy, you need to guard that. You need to guard those precious truths, Timothy. He's saying, I, as Christ's apostle, I'm commanding you to do this. That's not a suggestion, it's a command. Guard it. You are to diligently watch over and to protect this body of Christian teaching that is in your possession. You're to guard it, you're to watch over it, you're to protect it from being altered or corrupted by the enemies of the faith, from without and from within. Sadly, there are enemies within the gates of the church. And you are to watch over and protect this body of Christian teaching from being ignored or neglected by those within the church. You're to guard it. This was Timothy's foremost responsibility as a minister of the gospel in his day, and it is the foremost responsibility, I would argue, of today's ministers as well, whether they realize it or not. And by the way, again, I'm not the only pastor in the church. Just reminding you all of that. There are four of us. 
I'm the one that's most visible, but there are four of us that have this responsibility. So he says, guard that. We need to be careful about our doctrine, folks. That's why I try to be careful up here. Because it's important. It's truth. It's propositional truth that changes lives when it's properly taught and guarded and retained. Paul goes on, he says to Timothy, you're also to avoid worldly empty chatter. Worldly empty chatter. The Greek uh, is variously translated here uh, by the ESV as irreverent babble, by the the Net Bible as profane chatter, and by the Christian Standard Bible, which was used to be the Holman, irreverent and empty speech. Paul here, by the way, is reusing some of the language that he used back in chapter 1, verse 6, to describe the false teachers that were afflicting the believers there uh, in various ways in, in and around Ephesus. He was essentially, he's essentially telling Timothy here, because he has those false teachers and, and their behaviors in mind, <coughs> he's essentially telling Timothy, be sure never to fall into talking like those charlatans talk. You know how those guys talk? Don't do that, Timothy. They're clever. They make what they sound like they're saying as it's somehow it's knowledge, but it's not. It's diabolical deception is what it is. Don't talk like those guys. So he's telling ministers today, through his word, don't engage in this kind of uh, irreverent um, uh, babble, nonsense, um, that false teachers engage in. That applies to minister elders today. We are not to do this. But this doesn't just apply to Kirk and myself and Cesar, Paul, and Bill. Through Paul's instructions to Timothy to avoid this kind of speech, all Christians are being instructed. You're being instructed as well through this passage to avoid that kind of speaking. Empty, worldly chatter. So, think about some of the more light-hearted conversations you've had in the past week or two. Did any of them verge into the territory of worldly and empty chatter? Nothing wrong with light-hearted conversations. But there's, if you're not careful with them, they verge into babble, worldly babble. Because part of us likes that. I, I, I know that because I like, I like it sometimes. And you're just like me. Were any of your words in those lighthearted conversations a little irreverent? A little inappropriate? Perhaps an inappropriate use of God's name or 
some of his attributes in your words. Folks, there's, there's paternal forgiveness for those sins. There's always God is happy to forgive those sins. I've committed them. You've committed them. Maybe not this week, this past week, but you've committed them and so have I. We've engaged in conversation that we just should not have engaged in. It was too, it was frivolous nonsense. It was worldly nonsense. Not that we can't have fun. But we gotta, we gotta, we gotta draw the line right. And we don't always draw the line right. And there's forgiveness for that when we repent of it. You need to repent of it if you've engaged in it this past week or past times. So we need to avoid worldly and empty chatter. But there's one other thing he says we need to avoid in conclusion here, and that is, he says to Timothy, you need to avoid opposing arguments of what is falsely called knowledge. This too, like the previous uh, descriptor, uh, descriptive that I, uh, description that I had there uh, mentioned or that he uses of, uh, where is it, lost my place, uh, worldly and empty chatter, uh, this, too, is language that Paul used earlier, it just happened to be earlier in this chapter, in verses 3 through 5, uh, to describe the disputations and the arguments of the uh, false teachers that were uh, harassing the church there. Um, the opposing arguments and ideas uh, of these troubles of the church, Paul says, had the appearance, as I mentioned a moment ago, of knowledge to the uninformed, to the uninstructed, they have the appearance of knowledge, their arguments, their, their, uh, uh, yeah, their ideas. But Paul assures his, his readers here, I assure you, it's falsely identified as knowledge. It's not true knowledge. It was actually, what these men were spouting, was actually culpable ignorance dressed up as knowledge. Notice I said culpable ignorance. I dare say, most of what we are exposed to uh, on the internet, in magazines and books, on our television screens, in our world today, can and should be thought of this way as culpable ignorance dressed up as knowledge. This even includes, by the way, a good deal of what is represented, at least, as Christian content. I, I, I can't go into a Christian bookstore anymore without just wanting to heave sometimes, figuratively. Because there's just so much bad stuff that passes as Christianity. It's trying to be passed off as Christianity. Don't waste your time on that stuff, folks. Read the good guys. Most of them are all dead, by the way. Few living ones that are worth reading. No, the Holy Spirit, through Paul's pen, is commanding you, me, all of us, to stay away from such so-called knowledge that isn't. Are you staying away? You know... With the internet, there's so much that we can get to. I'm not just talking about, you know, I'm not talking about, you know, the evil images that you can see on that so readily, but just junk in the blogosphere. 
you know, on, on uh, websites. Just, just a whole lot of it is just, you know, junk. It's a waste of your time, at the very least, and maybe spiritually harmful at the worst. Are you reading stuff that's theologically, rather than you know is theologically sound, is theologically speculative or, or even unorthodox? Sometimes it's fascinating to read that stuff, I'll admit. Some of the opponents of uh, biblical truth are pretty eloquent and pretty fun to listen to. Pretty interesting to read. Should you really be spending your time reading that, though? Is it really helpful? Probably not. Now, guys like me sometimes have to read that stuff just to be aware of the, the garbage that's out there and the stuff that might trick you. Uh, so I've got to read it sometimes. But don't waste your time reading Bart or whatever. You're going to have to read Bart. Wyatt, it's going to seminary. <clears throat> anyway, we need to, we need to, we need to have the right priorities, folks. Is the point? We need to have the right priorities, and the right priority is the Holy One of Israel and His agenda, not the world's. Make your agenda to seek him this week, earnestly, in his word, through the means appointed, which is his word, and prayer, and the means of grace. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this passage, its reminders to us of what we should and shouldn't be doing as Christians living in this world. We thank you, first of all, Lord, for the um, generosity that you have displayed to us. We are all way wealthier than the folks in Malawi and Afghanistan and so many other places in this world. Um, even if relative to some of our neighbors, we're somewhat modest perhaps, but Lord, we're still wealthy. You've given us much. Thank you for that. Thank you that we're not looking, any of us really, for where our next meal is coming from. Lord, we ask that you would help us to use our wealth wisely in a God-honoring fashion, a fashion that pleases you and, and, and honors you. Lord, if there are ways in which we have not used our money that way, uh, or there are better ways that we could use our money that way, we ask that you would show each one of us how to do that. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to avoid getting caught up in conceit, getting caught up in um, fa uh, fascinating uh, philosophical or theological argumentation that's just not beneficial to our soul or to others. We ask that you would help us to, to focus on the things that would please you. And we pray, Lord, for all of us, not just the leaders in this church and uh, 
other leaders in our denomination. But we ask that you would help all of us to guard the body of Christian doctrine that has come down to us through the scriptures uh, that is apostolic truth, that is Jesus preaching and teaching. We pray that we would be zealous for the truth. And Lord, that we would not uh, be lured into being fascinated with creative theology, which so many have been and been damaged thereby. Keep us from being curious about creative thinking when it comes to theology. Help us, Lord, to look to the history of the church's teaching and the scriptures, uh, the church's interpretation of the scriptures' teaching for our understanding of what constitutes right doctrine, apostolic doctrine, Christ's doctrine. Lord, if there's anyone here listening that hasn't fled to Jesus Christ, the God-man, the only hope of sinners as his or her only hope of being forgiven and avoiding going to hell, would you please give such a hearer faith to believe and trust in Jesus alone as not only Savior of his life, but also as Lord and King of his life right now. We ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's close. (coughs) Receive now God's blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace, both now and forevermore. Amen.